Now, right there to get you guys to be quiet, but I really would like the Lord to be with you also. Um, okay, so I'm going to get started a little bit early, even though folks are still getting their food, because we have so much to talk about today. We've got a long list. So, No, we will not blow. We're going to be quick and I'm going to be so tight. We're going to cover so much. Before we jump in, here's my middle today name. Is, today is Q&A um, from things you guys have been submitting for the last month, but not quite yet. The first thing is I want to give you guys a little bit of insight about the status of VBS because it's amazing. I don't know if you know it, but we have completely redesigned VBS this year. It kind of changes year to year. We've redesigned the thing kind of post-COVID. Post We're really getting a lot of focus to the older kids, and it's, gonna be, it's just going to be incredible. We've got about 100 kids signed up. We expect about 100 more. And our number one need by a very wide margin is team leaders, crew leaders. What that means, there, there are groups of people. Well, there's groups of kids. And then each little subgroup of kids gets assigned a crew leader. The crew leaders are here. Check this out. They're here Monday through Thursday. That's when VBS runs. Basically from like 8.45 till noon. So it's like, you know, a little over three hours. If you get here a little early, you get free breakfast courtesy of Rob Wright, which is not something you'd want to miss. And we need, at this moment, 15 more crew leaders. That's a lot of crew leaders, okay? And some of the 15 crew leaders are in the room right now. You just don't know it, okay? But we would love, is there anybody in here who has already served in this role in the past? We've got crew leaders in here. There's a bunch, three at this table, others over here. I mean, there's a bunch of people that have been crew leaders. You guys, it's super fun. It's probably the most impactful role in the whole VBS setup because you're with the same kids day after day. If you can't do it four days in a row and you can do like two days, we can maybe pair you with somebody else that could do two days. But it's, it's seriously our biggest need. And so if you are, if you have the ability, if you're retired, if you're, you don't have to work, you can take a little vacation time, and you can be with these kids those mornings. Um, it's in like six weeks. You got, you got some details sitting in front of you on, the, uh, on that little QR code thing. What you can do is you can take your phone out. If you don't know how to use a QR code, just ask somebody that's younger than you at the table. And uh, you basically, you kind of like let your camera hover over the QR code. It'll take you to a website. And then you can say, yeah, I'd love to be a crew leader. And we would love you to love to do that. Because it's the thing that makes the biggest difference for the kids coming, and we want it to be just the best week for them. People come to Christ at VBS. It, it, it maps their lives. It's, it's a very, very high leverage way you can spend those few hours that week. Okay? So we'd love you to do that. And with that, we're going to shift, and Quig and I are going to be talking about a whole bunch of questions. So we did a series at, uh, in the main sanctuary on the why behind the what. We've been talking about like, why do we do weird Anglican things? We were talking about what the heck is our, the kind of whole vision for it. Um, and along the way, we invite, invited you to ask questions and you did. We got like, you guys, we got like 75 questions and there's just a ton of them. So what we did is we went through and we grouped them and we compressed them and we combined them and we organized them. And we're gonna answer as many questions as we can right now. So we're gonna be tight about it. I'll kind of MC it, Quig and I will both answer it. And then we're going to hopefully get to your favorite questions. I do think that if we answered all 75, many of you would be bored, okay? So we're going to try to kind of put the high-octane stuff to the top, and we're going to start off with this. You ready, Quig? I'm ready. Ready? Quig's been stretching. He's been preparing. He's ready. Okay. Quig, I have a question. Mm. If we are Protestants, why do we use the word Catholic in both creeds, and what does that mean? I'm actually so glad you asked that because it used to bug the fire out of me. Right? And so the reason, it's just really simple. The reason we use the word Catholic is that that's the Greek word. That's the Greek word. When the church came together in 325, there's a reason all the bishops, all the leaders came together. There's a heresy called Arianism. We don't have time to get into that, 
But basically, they're pulling Jesus down. Cults always do that. Lift man up, pull Jesus down. So they came together in 325, and they made the creed. And they said, we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic, some people say, means universal. It really means a part of the whole. So all people that are believers are part of that church. Now, another quick point, and I'll hand it off to you. The church started in the time of Jesus. What year was that? Help me out. 30 AD. Okay, so, yeah, he was, he was raised about 30 AD. We're in what year? 2020. Okay, so there was only one church from the time that Jesus um, was raised from the dead until 1100. There was only one church, okay? From 1100 to about 1500 or 1520, um, there was another split, okay? So you had the one holy Catholic apostolic church, the Orthodox leave, and then later you have the Protestant Reformation. What I want to say is be careful not to curse your grandparents. There, we came from the one church. And so when we say one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we say it because that's the word the church fathers used. It does not mean Roman Catholic, ask an Orthodox. It just means those who belong to the body of Jesus. Go. Indeed. All right. Next question. What's a catechism and do Anglicans have one? Okay, so a catechism is an ancient teaching methodology that's basically a verbal Q&A session. So we've been doing this for a long, long, long time. The earliest catechism, I think, is called like the Didache. It's like old, old, old school. But there's lots of catechisms that have been developed, and it's just simply a, a learning methodology. Right? You memorize a question and then the response, a question and then a response. And the question, the second question is, do we have one? Do Anglicans have one? And the answer is, yes, we do. It's called, do you may know what it's called? To be a Christian, right? It's, if you guys recall, in the last couple months ago, over you know, the beginning of the year, Bob Blecksmith led a class and was walking through the catechism. Um, if, you wanted, if you wanted to see a copy of the catechism, you can just go online and just Google ACNA catechism. It's called To Be a Christian. You can download it. It's free. Um, and we've taught it. I'll be, I'll be teaching it this summer in our, for the 20-somethings and feast. Um, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm planning on trying to sweet-talk Bob into doing his class again. So there'll be more opportunities. But, yeah, you can grab it. And then it's just a great way for you to just very systematically walk through a whole bunch of stuff. So To Be a Christian. All right, number three, quick. Why do we repeat song lyrics over and over when we sing songs of worship and hymns? This one is question slash complaint, okay? So I, take it as I actually, I get that, don't you? First of all, let me just say this. Uh, the hymn writers, so if, if you hate the modern praise music that goes on and on and on, repeats, Lord, we love you, we love you, we love you, we love you, we love you. Hymns do that as well. One hymn had 18 verses. Just As I Am, I think has six or seven, but some other people have added. So it's not just the modern praise and worship, it's also the hymns do it. But let me say, what do the four, um, is it creatures in Revelation 4, the four elders around the throne, Yeah. what do they say over and over, and they're probably saying it right now. They're going to say it tomorrow, and they're going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Yeah. And so if they can repeat, we can. Now, that being said, if you're a music minister, Repetition should be used sparingly. Now, one other point I found in Scripture I thought was cool. Um, Ecclesiastes says this, God is in heaven, you're on earth, so let your words be few. That's a proof text for not doing it over and over again. But there's another Scripture. Hold on. Oh, buh, 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 buh. did I find it? Oh, here it is. Um, Psalm 136 repeats the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever. How many times? Like 20 26 times. times. Yeah. So I'm just saying there is biblical precedent 
for repetition. And also, how many of your parents or grandparents or have a little chap that you love? <laughs> okay, so when we FaceTime our grandkids in Japan, we have a new grandson, Barrett. He's like four months. And if you could see us on the FaceTime, we look so silly. Hey, buddy. Hey, how you doing? Love you, man. Love you. Hey, bear. Boo, boo, boo. Boo, boo, boo. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over. It's a way we express love. It's okay to be simple. It's okay. Back to you, buddy. Indeed. All right. You're gonna, you're gonna give, I'm going to give you two in a row. Quick, why do we have robes and why do we use different colors in the services? Yeah. First of all, um, I've told people there's no requirement to use a robe. We have church planners that don't use robes. If we were starting a church today and we were in maybe a, not a church building but somewhere else, I might not wear a robe. The reasons people give for using robes, a lot of people go, well, think of the priests in the Old Testament, right? They would go up to Jerusalem and they would wear robes that said, what we're doing is important, it's for the Lord and it's holy. So that's one reason some people give. The practical reason is this. Let's say that um, I go in the ministry and my dad has no money at all. Tommy goes in the ministry. His dad is a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. He has a $12,000 suit and pair of shoes. I don't even have a suit or a pair of shoes. And so one of the things by wearing that bed sheet over us, everybody's the same. It's like the military. It's like the police. It's like ambulance. And eventually it goes away. Now colors. Color. What's the purple deal? Purple means I'm a bishop, and there's no thing that says you have to wear this. Some bishops wear black. I wear black at funerals. But let's talk about colors. Imagine yourself in the sanctuary. I fought hard for those glass windows, by the way. When you look out the sanctuary, what do you see? If it's in January, what are you likely to see? Snow. Snow, and that color is? White. Thank you. And then let's say uh, in the spring when the flowers are coming up and out, and maybe some new tender shoots. You're going to see lots of colors. What about in the, in the bleak of winter when there's no snow? What color are the trees? Brown. Dark, yeah, brown, almost black, dark gray. So you're seeing those colors. Um, how about in October? It's like my favorite time of year here. Orange, yellow. Orange and yellow. And so God, at least in Virginia, maybe not in Phoenix or in Florida, but in Virginia, God marks seasons, he marks time with color. And so that's the way Anglicans mark their church year. And there's that long season where we wear green forever, and that's called ordinary time. Just ordinary time. Um, any other particular questions on colors? Uh, that's the only one we have. So what can you, can you, do you, can you rattle off the co- this season? Sure. This color, what, you know, these things so, are? all right, let's start. Um, what is the color of white used for? Take a guess. Yes. Easter, great. Resurrection. What else is it used for? Weddings, which is supposed to symbolize purity. Um, and there are other things, but that's white, okay? Think of resurrection. Think of weddings and funerals, which also talk about resurrection. How about black, uh, which we, our church uses on Good Friday? Some churches use red, we use black, but what does black stand for? Johnny Cash, thank you. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about purple. We use that in Advent and Lent. What is purple? Is it just a random color? Mm, I like purple. Royalty. Royalty. And do you know why royalty wore purple and no one else did? It was expensive. Because the little slug or whatever they made purple die out of was so crazy expensive, nobody could afford it but kings. And so those are times we look forward to the coming king, but also the church 
always grabbed um, the thought that Lent and Advent are times where you ask the Lord to search you and try you. And so purple became a time of repentance and asking the Lord to search us and try us. Other colors. Uh, red. red. Pentecost. Why would red, uh, Pentecost use red? For the flames. The fire from heaven, right? Fire from heaven. Also, saints' days. And you're like, what do you mean saints? We don't, that makes me nervous. Well, if you're a Christian, you are set apart. That word means, that's, that's what saint means, one who is set apart. But why, do we, why would we use red for saints' days as we remember the apostles and other famous or mighty men or women of God? Why would we use red celebrating their, the date of their because death? Martyred. Because they were martyred. They spilled their blood. And so every color has a reason. Did we leave any colors out? Red and yellow, Green black is and ordinary. White. Green is ordinary. Yeah, I, think that's it. Right. I think that's the. I think that's the calendar. All right, there you go. All right, this is kind of in a similar vein. The question is, what is liturgy, and why should we care? Okay, so the word liturgy literally. Do you know what it literally means? Like what the root here is? It's the, it's the work of the people. The idea with liturgy, the reason we design things the way we do, rather than just having an audience member that just sits in passivity and some professional on stage doing everything. The liturgy is like, it's the work of the people. Together we're jumping in, we're, it's participatory, okay? But here's, I think, for, for my, for me at least, the single most helpful thing to think about the liturgy, and in particular, the repetitious nature of the liturgy, is that it's formational, okay? And what we mean by that is when, when we say, you might be able to, I'm not going to make anybody do this, but you might be able to stand up right now and like, and then rip your way through the confession of sin, the prayer that we do every week about confessing our sin, right? And whether you could or not, I guarantee you that if you sat back, if you've been here for a while, you're gonna hear there's these certain phrases that kind of run through, right? We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves, right? There's sins we've committed in thought and word and deed, right? You've got these, these phrases that have been kind of woven into your brain. And when we're doing that, this is the, the dirty little secret of liturgy, okay? Is I want you to think of liturgy as practice. I want you to think of liturgy as training, okay? And you might think, I will never need to say these things. I will never need to do these things. But if you've ever been to a gym, if you've ever lifted weights, okay, there's, there will never be a time in your life that you need to lie on your back and press 135 pounds above your chest 10 times in a row. It will never, ever happen, right? But by doing that, by laying on your back and doing a bench press, you gain the ability to do other things in life that you actually need to do. You're, it's, you're training your body. Liturgy is reps, okay? It's training, it's practice. When I was at Penn State, I would take students, we'd go out and we'd share the gospel all the time on campus. And, but when we were doing it, what, what, the, the, the secret there was, I, what, we weren't really merely trying to reach the students that we were talking to on any given afternoon. It was training. Because if I would take, I could take a student out and we could have, over the course of a semester, we could literally have 30 gospel conversations with people over and over and over and over. reps. We're just getting repetitions in. And all of those reps are training people in the way things can go and what to do and what to say in the situation, which they can then go apply in a natural context, right? And if all we ever did was this natural mode of evangelism, we might have like one or two opportunities a semester to do that. And our training would have been dramatically diminished, okay? We do things repeatedly because it's formational. It's training. It's preparing so that when you're at home all by yourself and we're not in the sanctuary and you realize you need to confess your sins, you're like, oh, thought, word, deed. Things I've done, things I haven't done. Loving God, loving my neighbor. And you've got these categories for it. So everything that we're doing that, is, that feels like the liturgy, that feels like rote memorization, that feels like 
repetition. It is, but it's formational. It's training, and that's why we do it. Cool? Yeah. All right. Quick. What's the next one? Oh, yeah, here's a big one. Why do we baptize infants? Next question. <laughs> no, you got this. You so got I just got to be honest with you guys. Like, I was forced by my Episcopal bishop around 1993 to go back to seminary and meet with the dean and learn about infant baptism. I actually already knew about it. I just didn't believe in it. And you can't really be an Anglican priest and not believe in infant baptism. So I was in a situation. Um, the reason, the, the problem I had with it um, initially was there's words in the prayer book that talk about those who are here, um, being baptized are born again, cleansed from sin, made an inheritor of the kingdom. And I'm like, well, we can't say that. That person has no obvious faith. And so that was why I'm like, I'll do it, but I'll hold my nose, okay? But what changed my mind? First of all, when God initiated a relationship, a covenant with his people, Israel, especially with Abram, Okay, Genesis 15, he starts a covenant, a relationship. And then in Genesis 17, I think that's right, he tells him there's a sign of that covenant. This is when you're glad you're a lady and not a man. What's a sign of the covenant? Circumcision. So 1,800 years before Christ, God's people were given a sign, a real sign of the covenant, one they'd never forget, okay? All right, so if that had been the practice for 1,800 years, God's people, now what do you do when you come into Jesus, your people of the new covenant? Is circumcision now required? And, and we found out the answer is no. I don't think many of you had your male child rushed to church of the Holy Spirit to be circumcised. And so what sign or marking do we say? For children of believers, not, not children of non-believers, Children of believers, if even one parent is a Christian, the Bible says your child is holy. Your child is set apart. It doesn't mean they're saved, but it means they're set apart and that God is at work. He's placed them in a Christian home. Even before your child was in your womb, the Lord knew them. And so uh, we give them the covenant sign. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, quick. Are you telling me that every child that's baptized is going to be a Christian? Do you believe that? Adolf Hitler was baptized. Is he a Christian? Jim Jones was baptized. Is he a Christian? No. But what we're saying, friends, is we give the covenant sign. We say this child is in a Christian family. God has sovereignly placed them under the leadership of Christian parents. And so we give them the sign, and we pray as parents, Lord, help us to disciple this child. We are not going to treat our child as a pagan. Why? Because the Bible says that if you're a Christian and you have a child, your child is a child of promise. And so it's not magic, right? God doesn't force anybody to, to love him. God doesn't have any grandchildren. But we give that child the sign of the covenant. and We welcome them into the body of Christ. But it's expected at some point in the future that that child will say, I'm so glad I was baptized. I'm so glad the Holy Spirit did that. But at some point, I'm going to step forward and say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have confirmation. Anything you want to add to that, Tim? Uh, I mean, a, we could talk about that for a long time. So maybe, maybe we'll, if we have time at the end, maybe we'll see if they, if they have follow-up questions on that. But not yet. We want to get through our first round, and then maybe I'll jump in if there's there. But that's, I think that's an excellent answer, and I completely agree. Here's another one on baptism, you guys. It says this, baptism and creed. It says, why does the creed say 
quote, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Then he goes on to explain why they have a question about that. Our sins are forgiven when we come to faith in Christ and as we confess our sins throughout our lives. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith and does not seem to me to have anything to do with the forgiveness of sins. Please explain. Okay? I think it's a great question, and I think it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a perspective there that's consistent with what Quigg is saying. We do not believe that baptism confers salvation. There's a doctrine known as baptismal regeneration. I do not think that we, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. And so the spirit behind this question I think I'm in agreement with. However, I would be cautious not to, like, go too far with this. When, when the questioner asks or, or makes the claim, um, baptism is an outward sign of inward faith and does not seem to me to have anything to do with the forgiveness of sins, I think you're going too far, okay? So Peter says in, in Acts 2, it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, does anybody know the next line? For the, forgiveness. For the forgiveness of sins. Peter is clearly making a linkage here. Or later on in Acts 22, it says, And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay? So while I would, I would re strongly reject the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, it does not follow that baptism has nothing to do with forgiveness of sins. Right? So we've got to say, okay, if it's, what does it have to do with this? And I think that what, I think we have, what we should understand is that there's a couple of things that are being signified in baptism, okay? On the one hand, there is this image, literally this image of being washed clean, right? There's some language that the Bible uses to talk about the idea that our sins are washed away right there in Acts 22. But it is also, I think, uh, the primary understanding of baptism is that it's our identification with Christ. That if you were to baptize a uh, piece of cloth in purple ink, purple what would you call it? I guess ink, sorry. Where dye, purple dye, you would pull out a purple shirt. And the shirt would be identified with, Christ, with, with the purple. Now, it's what, what it's been baptized into, it is now, is now soaked through it. And this is, I think, one of the primary images that we'll find. In Romans 6, which I would say Romans 6 is probably the most important passage in the Bible on baptism. Uh, in Romans 6, Paul says that what you're doing is that you are identifying with Jesus in his death. As he died, he went into the grave, you go into the water. You're identifying with him in his death. And as he came up out of the grave, we take you up out of the water and you're identifying with him in his new life. And so I would be very, very slow to say, in fact, I would not say that this idea that we are being identifying with Christ in his death and identifying with Christ in his life has, quote, nothing to do with forgiveness. It has everything to do with forgiveness. This outward sign is a picture of the only possible way that our sins are going to be forgiven. It's by our identification. Okay? Now, Peter, who said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins in Acts 2, also says, in, listen to what he says in his letter. He says, this water symbolizes, he's talking about baptism, this, this, this is 1 Peter 3, 21, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Okay? And you could, you, that could freak you out a little bit, but hang on, listen to what he says. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers. I believe that what Peter means there is when he says it's baptism that saves you, and then his next thing is, I'm not talking about the water that's lit. He's not, not literally the water, but the fact that you are identifying with him, that he is the one who is cleansing you. That's the thing that saves us. So 
I think Peter would agree with us that he he's, not, he's not teaching baptismal regeneration, but he is saying, absolutely, this is how we do it. This is the marker. This is the sign, the outward sign, but the inward reality, the blood-bought forgiveness of Jesus Christ, right? This is what saves us. But we get baptized as an act of obedience to him because this is how we say to the world, hey, I'm with him. I'm in him. Make sense? Can I do a PS? Please. This is what happens you get old. You forget things, and it's like the train goes off the track, and if you chase it, you can't catch it. But if you sit there and have another conversation, it comes around. So if you were to say, why do you baptize infants? I would answer a question with a question. Why do you dedicate infants? Could you show me? Go ahead. You have Google right now. Show me one scripture in the New Testament, even one for the sacred practice you're holding on to and fighting for. Can you show me one example of a Christian bringing their child for dedication in the New Testament? There is none. Hold on. You're telling me this is the thing that I fought for? Almost got kicked out of the Episcopal Church over? Dedication, dedication, dedication. The thing that changed my mind was not covenant, though that might have done it. The thing that changed my mind was sitting down with my Bible and a note, notepad, and I went through the entire New Testament, and I could not find one case of infant dedication. If we're people of the word, don't you think that might catch our attention and might inform what we do? And of the um, different occasions of baptism in the New Testament, guess how many there are? I mean, heck, I would have thought 200. 3,000 were added that day. How many separate cases of baptism in the whole New Testament? <laughs> Hazard a guess. Five. Anybody think 300? 200, 150, 20, Three. 10, 10, 10 separate occasions of baptism. If I'm off one, forgive me. Of the 10, how many were household baptisms? Household baptisms. Household means whole house. They heard the word of God preached to them. And Cornelius and his household was baptized. Lydia and her household was baptized. Uh, who's the other one? I don't have a my brain. Yeah, yeah, Philippian jailer. Okay, so of the 10 cases of baptism, five, 50% uh, were occasions with somebody who had a household and the entire household was baptized. Again, I go back to the question, how many times is infant dedication mentioned in the New Testament? And you're Bible people, aren't you? And so if that's true, we might have to change what we do. Back to you, Tim. Right. Very good. All right, quick. This is a bigger question, but um, what can you tell us about the current state of homosexuality in the Anglican world? Yeah. First thing I want to re recognize is that um, just statistically, several people here struggle or don't struggle with homosexuality. And what I would say to you, when you come to my office, I usually say, I believe that's sin but let me share with you the things I struggle with. I do plenty of things, or don't do plenty of things, that grieve the Lord and separate me from him. Anglicans 100% believe marriage is between one man and one woman until they die. We've always believed that, but that's not what people believe now. But Anglicans believe one man, one woman, holy matrimony. Do you know what Jesus said? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So out of Jesus' own mouth, this whole idea of um, marriage, same-sex marriage, it's, it just cannot be justified by Scripture. It's not there. 
even you think about why God gave us a help meet, part of it was, like it or not, it's for procreation. And so the Anglicans have traditionally believed that, but like everything else, you know, it's kind of like saying, what do Americans believe about subject A? We're going to have all kinds of opinions. And people, you know, when there's no king in Israel, everybody does what seems right in their own eyes. And so we started to see the wealthy um, Americans, Canadians, Australians, Scottish, who are very um, enlightened, started kind of getting away from clear scripture teachings and started to do whatever the heck they wanted to do, i.e. blessing same-sex relationships, ordaining, practicing. And I, I, want, I want to underline that word, practicing. Practicing homosexuals. But I would say this, if you're practicing heterosexual sexual sin, there's no difference. There is no difference. So eventually what happened in 1998, all the bishops in the Anglican world came together and, a, and in a huge vote of like 527 to 70, they voted that marriage is between one man and one woman and it can never be other. We will not ordain people who are practicing homosexually or those who are practicing outside the bonds of marriage heterosexually. And then the bishops went on to say, however, we call you to great care, take the beam out of your own eye, right? Be humble, recognize your own sin and minister in love because many of those friends that struggle with that are our brothers and our sisters. And I, you know, the Jesus says, whatever scale you use will be used on you. We want, to sh we want to speak truthfully, and we never want to change the bullseye. We also want to speak gracefully, grace and truth. So in terms of our denomination, um, homosexuality, the practice of it, not the desire maybe, but the, certainly the practice of it is sin. So is heterosexual uh, relations outside of before or after marriage. We're clear about that. If we have a clergy, we've had clergy that were addicted to pornography, doing all these different things, we deal with that gracefully, lovingly, but there's a time to say no, and we will not ordain somebody that is uh, operating sexually outside of that covenant marriage. All right, good enough, thank you. All right, this is a long, another long question, so bear with me on this one. It's about communion. So when taking Holy Communion, it seems that the Anglican Church, or more specifically those churches within our diocese, have varying and or unclear views on the, quote, real presence of Christ. We clearly don't believe in transubstantiation, as that is repugnant to us, according to the 39 Articles of Religion. When the celebrant says, feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving, could this be misconstrued by some? We quote from scripture and say that we are doing it in remembrance of Christ, but I believe it's more than just a memorial celebration. We're not offering it as a sacrifice to God, as some have said, because we always say, in accordance with Hebrews 13 and Romans 12, we are offering a sacrifice of praise and offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, respectively. Moreover, the celebrant clearly states that Christ, quote, has been sacrificed once for all upon the cross and not each time during the process of the Lord's table. How does CHS view the efficacious nature of the Eucharist? Okay, there's a lot in there, and that's, we're gonna, I'm going to give you like, you know, the five-minute version of this. That, that could be like literally a seminary class, okay? So let me, let me kind of lay out some of the terms. When we, what, what they describe as transubstantiation, or the, what they call transubstantiation, is the official Roman Catholic doctrine that the substance of the elements is, is uh, uh, trans, what do you call it? What's the word I'm looking for? Transformed. Thank you. I, couldn't, I lost the word, okay? That the bread becomes flesh and the wine becomes blood. 
And that, not only is that happening, but it's happening because at, in each mass, Christ is being crucified again. It is, a, it, is a, it is a reliving of his death for us, okay? That doctrine, and this, this question is exactly right, the 39 Articles calls that view repugnant, strong language, to the Word of God. So we don't believe in that, okay? But from there, there's this range of things, from transubstantiation to consubstantiation, that has not been transfor- transformed into blood and, and flesh, but, it, but he is with it. And you can walk down a kind of a continuum over here to where you get to the finally where it's like merely a, mem- a, mem- a memory, just a memorial. It's a, it's a token that points to. And the question is, what does Anglicanism, where does Anglicanism line up on this spectrum, and where does CHS line up on this spectrum, okay? And the real answer is Anglicanism lines up right about here on the spectrum, okay? I mean, genuinely. So one of, the, one of the secrets of Anglicanism is that we're fond of what's called the middle way, the via media. And so Anglicanism is by design very broad. And there is a range within Anglicanism from something we would call Anglo-Catholic that kind of kisses right up against the Catholic view down to what we would call Reformed Anglicanism, which is rather far from that. Generally speaking, CHS is going to be done on the reform side, although people are welcome to believe all sorts of things here. We're delighted to have you wherever you line up on that spectrum. But if you're asking what we believe, and it might even be, I'm not, Quick and I have never really gone to, gone to the mat on this, but it might be that we're not exactly aligned on that, or maybe we are, I don't know. There's, there's room. We're all, we're all within this kind of range. What I would say, what I would suggest to you on on this question the real presence of christ is christ really present when we celebrate communion my answer to that is yes he is there's something going on there okay but i believe that there is something that is missing in the way that we understand this by and large i'm going to teach on this i'll be teaching first corinthians 11 in a few weeks and the thing that i think is generally missing that would we would do much better to understand it at a deeper level is that there is a horizontal as well as a vertical element to We generally speaking, throughout like the, for like a long time, and not, I don't mean the Holy Spirit, I mean like everybody has turned this meal into a vertical phenomenon. The way that we do it is very, very vertical. But I think that what you find in 1 Corinthians 10, well, the most, I'd say the most important passage on communion, whereas Romans 6 is our text on, on baptism, 1 Corinthians 11 is the, would you agree? 1 Corinthians 11. Is that 11? the one, the cup that we bless is not a... Koinonia yep. or fellowship with the body of Christ. Okay, that's chapter 10. That's 10. That language is 10. And then chapter 11 is, is the path. The, 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 if you read chapter 11, you'll recognize it instantly. It's like, oh, this is the stuff that we say every week. Um, chapter 10 and 11. But 11 first, and I put 10 in second place, are about this. And the word that Quig used right here, koinonia, you might have recognized that. It's a, where we say, is, is this not a participation? That's koinonia. Is this not a participation in the body of Christ, in the blood of Christ? I think that the best way that we should understand what is happening at the table has to reckon with this. Jesus says, where two or three or more are gathered, I am there with them. Is Jesus, I, I, do, not believe, I do not believe in transubstantiation. This bread did not become the body of Christ. But you are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Is Christ present when we celebrate the table? You bet he is. Because he's present in the community, in the gathered community of the saints. I think that tends to be somewhat lost in the, in, the, in the discussion. We got fixated on the bread and the wine, but I think really what's going on is we're, we're supposed to look and see the people. And I think I could prove that to you if we took more time in the scriptures. But so we do believe in the real presence of Christ. I would, take to, I would hold personally to a view 
that the real presence of Christ is seen chiefly in the people at the table, not the food on the table, but that God has invited us to take a meal. He is the host. It is his table, and we are sharing that meal with him, and we, we shouldn't treat it like that. So. Most of the Protestant reformers, most all of them believe that Christ is present to those who receive, uh, drink, and eat in faith. He is present. Now, how he's present, they would argue about. Even Menno Simons, the, the forerunner of the Anabaptists, most of his quotes, if you look them up online, he's like really against any idea that Christ is present. But I found one stray quote where he basically said, when God's people come together and eat in faith, basically the Lord is with them in a special way. So even the most radical reformer, the most Anabaptist, Menno Simons, I even found one little quote from him where he's kind of acknowledging that God is doing something very power, powerful in the midst of this meal that we take together. Yeah. All right. Quick. There's a question about the prayer requests that we do. I want to give you a chance to yeah. kind of jump in on that. So I'm all about knocking down barriers to get what you want, right? Um, and so I always tell people, hey, you can fill out a prayer request and you can stick it in the offering. That's one way. You can text prayer to the number. I can't remember the number. It's always on the screen. You can do that. Um, you can write a note and give it to Tim or Barbara or, or Brian or me. We want to pray with you. In fact, we, uh, we have a prayer team that prays over different needs. We have some prayer requests where they say, please don't share it with anybody but the vestry. Or please, please don't share it with anyone but the staff. Or please don't share it with anyone but the pastors. So we dole out those prayer requests as you have asked. I don't know if you know this, but our vestry meeting, you ever heard death by meeting? We used to have three, four, five-hour meetings, and, you know, people are tired, blah, 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 and it just got to be miserable. So we change what we do. We do all our business outside the meeting. We do all the heavy lifting outside the meeting. And so for the first 40-some minutes of a vestry meeting, that's only an hour and a half drop-dead time, 40 of those minutes is given to praying for people who come to meet with our vestry for prayer. Bottom line is, if you have a need, ask. Grab me. Text me. Write me. Tim. Put it in the basket. There are a million ways to get there, but the vestry, the staff, all of us, we want to pray with you and for you. And we really do. I promise. We get, we get these things in an email every week, and I promise you, we, we pray for you guys. We care deeply about you. We know life is hard. Those prayer requests, are, they're sometimes tough. It's like, man, there's so much going on. There's, it's, a, it's a hard world. Okay. And the clock is so ticking. Okay. So was the Anglican church begun by Henry VIII? <laughs> oh, I wish I had more time on this. Okay. So here's the deal. Here's the, here's the caricature. There was this wicked king, and he wanted to get a divorce, and thus was born the Church of England, okay? That's kind of the way that tends to get framed. And there are elements of that that are true. There was a wicked king, and he did want to get a divorce. And the, and, and the Church of England does show up conspicuously at that time, okay? But here's what, that miss, here's what that really misses. As the Reformation is breaking out across Europe, right, country after country, God is raising up different people that are saying, hang on a second, time out, time out, time out. The church has gone completely off the rails. You're saying things that aren't true. You're failing to say the things that are true. What is happening? And different individuals rose up. In England, one of the earliest guys is John Wycliffe, right? John Wycliffe was just this lion, and he's like, no, 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 this is not true. And he begins to translate the scriptures into English for people to know and understand the truth of the gospel, okay? He had no interest in Henry VIII getting a divorce. Henry didn't even, wasn't even alive when this starts, right? And then after Wycliffe, you got Tyndale. And Tyndale is one of my absolute heroes. Tyndale is this unbelievably courageous, brilliant, godly man. And again, as he studies the scriptures, he realizes, oh my gosh, like the church is completely teaching all kinds of false things. He gets into this dispute. He was, he was having a conversation with somebody who basically worked in the Roman structure. And uh, this, this fellow says, had the audacity to say to Tyndale, 
we would be better off without the laws of God than without the laws of the Pope. And when, that's, when, when Tyndale heard that, something broke inside him. And he responded, he said, if God spares my life, he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life, I will make the boy who drives the plow know more of Scripture than you do. And he said about his great life work to translate the Bible into English for all the common people to hear it. Then we come to like Latimer and Ridley, these guys that are just absolute studs, these reformers that are like advocating for the truth of the gospel. They were burned to death at the stake, right? Burned to death at the stake because of, their, because of the constancy of their faith. They had no interest in the political nature of what's going on in the kingdom of England. But they happened to be good friends with a guy named Thomas Cranmer, okay? Cranmer was their friend. He was, part, he was the third point of that triangle. Cranmer was made to watch his friends burn. He was made to watch them die. And as he watched them die in agony, in absolute horrific agony, he himself recanted his faith. He's like, because he just didn't think he could do it. He couldn't live, he couldn't, he couldn't endure the pain. Well, Cranmer, this man who, one who watched his friends die, who believed in the true gospel, also happened to be very closely positioned to the king. And he knew, he had known, that if the church in, this, in England, this is the church in France, this is the church in Germany, this is the church in Switzerland, was really going to transform, he's going to need political cover. And he was brilliant. He was strategic. He was wise. Not merely being faithful to the gospel for gospel reasons, but he knew that if he had the sponsorship of the king, that would facil- facilitate things greatly. By the way, he didn't only recant his faith, but he recanted his recantation. It was himself ultimately burned alive at the stake as Tyndale was, as all these guys were, right, um, in order to see the gospel really take root. So Cranmer was very savvy. He was very smart about using political institution and realizing the king's sponsorship would help him. But, along, but this thing was not started by King Henry VIII. It was not desired by King Henry VIII. It was, it was created by these faithful men who saw the truth of the gospel and wanted to see it alive in England. Cranmer had the, had the insight to know how do we actually bring good theology to bear under the king's pleasure. He ultimately was killed for doing it. But we, we are of a group of people that were faithful to Christ, that wanted to know and teach true things, but were living in their own genuine political times. So we are, we are not the King Henry gets a divorce party. We are the faithful to the teachings of the scripture party, but we're born at a particular moment in time. So, is that so yeah. So one thing you could Google when you get home is, when were the first churches built in England? Because a lot of us think, oh, they started in 1540 with... King Henry VIII. No, no, no. Hundreds, hundreds yeah. of years before. Wycliffe's way earlier. Yeah, so the church existed. Yeah. There were Bible-believing, uh, Orthodox Christians, some that had their theology was a little wiggy, but they were Christians in England. It's kind of they're fighting over who, who, who the man is. Yeah, yeah. Is the man the Pope or is the man not the Pope? Yeah, for sure. Okay, now we have about 300 more questions, but it's 1046. So do you want to stop? You can keep going. Five more minutes. Okay. All right. Here's the next one. Tim, uh, this is for me. Do we ever invite women to share the Bible teaching on Sunday mornings? What is the Anglican perspective on this? Okay. So this is, this, again, every one of these is, could, could be developed in, in greater length. Um, the, as always, the Anglican perspective on this is this. Okay. Our perspective on this is that Quig and I both, and our, and our diocese holds to a framework known as complementarianism. Okay? This, what this means is that we believe the scriptures teach that men and women are complementary. We are not interchangeable, 
but we fit together. We are made for different things. Obviously, there's an enormous amount of overlap between men and women, but there are some things that God has uniquely called men to do, some things God has uniquely called women to do. One of the things that we believe the New Testament teaches is uniquely the case uh, is that men are called to the role of presbyter. Okay? So when you see the Quig is a priest, or that I'm a priest, or that Brian's a priest, priest is not, we are not priests in the sense of Old Testament priests. It, priest is really like the nickname for presbyter, and what it means is elder. Okay? And we believe that, that the, the rules for presbyters, well, we know the rules for presbyters are laid out chiefly in 1 Timothy and Titus. And those rules seem, I would say, and I would hold this humbly, but, but somewhat tightly, because I think that's what the words mean, that God, is, God has ordained men into the role of presbyter. Okay? Now, as I say that, we're going to do this next week. We're going to study Romans in this room, if you want to come. When we study Romans, we're going to look at Romans 16, which is absolutely jammed with women making dramatic, significant, meaningful contributions. I believe that Paul believed that men alone can serve in the role of presbyter, but that Paul relied constantly on women. All over and over and over again, Paul affirms the roles that women, that women play, and they, they do and they did. Jesus affirms the roles that women play, and he does and did. And the women had enormous outsized influence in, in his ministry, supporting his ministry, being part of his ministry. But just as Paul and Jesus believed in the, in the significant contributions of women, it seems that Jesus specifically and meaningfully chose men to be the disciples, to be the apostles, that Paul has chosen men to be presbyters, and there's reasons that he has done so. We want to be faithful to both sides of that charge, to have numerous meaningful opportunities for everybody to contribute, to participate. We want the wisdom that men bring. We want the wisdom that women bring. And we have numerous opportunities for women to teach, to lead. We have Bible studies. We have conversations. Uh, and we constantly, we can't not learn from women. I learn so much stuff from my wife. I learn stuff from the scriptures from my wife all the time. We want women's voices here in this Sunday school class. And so, yes, there's enormous opportunity, but the particular role to be the priest and to be, therefore, the ones that are both serving at the table and have the chief opportunity to teach the word, we do believe that the Bible reserves those in that sort of a setting, the authoritative teaching of the scriptures, it seems to me, from the record of the New Testament, to be reserved to men. And so we are fa we're faithful to that paradigm. There are some Anglicans that would disagree with some of what I've just said and would say, yes, that women can be ordained as priests. I disagree with them. I think that they've made a mistake. I don't think they understand accurately what the Bible says, but they are nevertheless faithfully within the Anglican communion, but not the way that we practice it, nor the way that our diocese is. So. Yeah, the College of Bishops took up this issue, and it's a very contentious issue in ACNA, as you can imagine, because part of me goes, that's not fair. I got two daughters that are female, obviously they're female. Uh, I got two daughters and they're great at ministry. They've been in young life. They've led more people to Christ than most of you. And so I want them to do their ministries, but be a presbyter, no. The, the College of Bishops said, we realize there are differences of opinion, but as we look at the Bible, those passages you mentioned, and church history, we would say the uh, ordination of women to be presbyters or bishops is a recent innovation in church history against apostolic order. We acknowledge that people in our province have different opinions, but this is what the bishop said. It's a recent innovation. Let me tell you how recent. I went to seminary um, in 1982. I started the process in 1981. Uh, the first ordination of a woman to be a presbyter in the Anglican Church in the U.S. was 1977. That was three and a half years before I entered the process to be ordained. 
that's how recent it is. Okay, we're out of time, I think. We gotta go to church. Oh yeah, okay, so, Bar yeah, thank you, that's a good question. So Barbara is a deacon, so there are, there are we, we have three like orders of, what do we call these? Uh, orders of ministry? So deacon, presbyter, and bishop. Quig is both a presbyter and a bishop, which is a little bit unusual. Usually bishops aren't like at a local level. But, um, and then deacon. And so the, well, these are all just strong. So in the New Testament, you see there's a role of deacons. Some, some would have deacons and deaconesses. We just kind of combine those into one, one order. And so the deacon's role is what you see Barbara doing. The, the word literally means servant. And Barbara serves behind the scenes in 10 million ways. You guys, I mean, those, some of you have, a, have had a chance to get a front row view of that. Um, and so, she, so we have, in our diocese, we have ordained men and women can serve as deacons. Only men can serve as priests or presbyters and bishops. So, yeah. All right. I think we got to go to church because we're long on time. Thank you for your kind attention. You. I know that was a.